Welcome to another episode of Red Skies, where we seek to read the cultural signs of our times in conversation with thought leaders from around the globe. Our goal is to find a path for our future as the church, asking the question, how can we as followers of Jesus be good news to an ever chaotic and divisive world? This podcast is brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective, a community and catalyst for movement leaders worldwide, and 100 Movements Publishing, seeking to change the conversation, shift paradigms, equip leaders, and inspire missional discipleship, and is produced and presented in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance, a generative, expansive, and intercultural network around theology and practice. You can find out more about the book, Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations About Our Future as the Church, as well as other tools available to help your church, organization, or movement at redskiesfuture.com. The book can also be purchased on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and other platforms where books are sold. You can enter the missional conversation with other movement leaders around the globe at movementleaderscollective.com. And now for this week's episode. Hey, welcome to another Red Skies Conversation. Um, I am one of your hosts, Roland Smith, and I'm super excited about our guest today. Uh, But let me first introduce um, the guest host that I have with us. And uh, really glad to have Ania Akwabi with us. She is a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, an author, and will be a professor soon. Excited about that. Um, How are you doing, Ania? How are things going? Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Roland. And Rich Robinson is joining us from Edinburgh, um, from the UK, and we're glad to have him. He is the founder of Catalyst Change Movement Leaders Collective. And then both Rich and Ania are also authors in Red Skies. And so we look forward at some point to doing um, interviews with both of you. But good to see you too, Rich. It's good. It's not nice to be on this side of the interviewer panel rather than the interviewee. So looking forward to it. Yeah, you'll be flipping back and forth at times. So good to see you both. Um, well, I want to introduce our guest uh, t- uh, today, and he is one of our chapter contributors in Red Skies. And um, Michael Beck is a pastor, professor, and author. Um, he and his wife, Jill, are United Methodist co-pastors, and they oversee a network of fresh expressions gathering in tattoo parlors, dog parks, yoga studios, burrito joints, and digital spaces. That's exciting. Uh, Michael serves as the director of Fresh Expressions House of Studies for United Theological Seminary, is a cultivator of Fresh Expressions in Florida, and I think you have a new role in Florida too. You can update us in a sec, Michael, and is the director of remissioning for Fresh Expressions U.S. Did I get all of that? That is a lot of stuff that you were doing, dude. Yeah, and what's your new role in Florida? You're actually overseeing Fresh Expressions in Florida, right? Yeah, so I have sold my soul to the institution, and I'm now the director of uh, Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference. So we just need to plant like 500 churches by 2025. No big deal. No big deal. (laughs) Well, hey, before we, we're going to jump into your chapter um, pretty quick here and dive in. Um, But just before we do that, just so everyone can get to know you a little bit, you, you have one of the most, one of the most grace-filled journeys that I've heard about um, in just your journey from uh, incarceration to wearing vestments on a Sunday and preaching the word of God. And could you and I know that you share it openly, um, and so I'm not I'm not putting you on the spot. But could you kind of give us just the the real short of your journey and what God has done in your life? Yeah, so I try to avoid the priestly vestments as much as possible. I consider my priestly vestments my black tee and jeans, so I can just be among the people. But um, yeah, so I was born addicted. And uh, I was abandoned at birth. My biological father was unknown. So my grandparents stepped in, raised me, brought me to a United Methodist church uh, that loved on me, nurtured me, um, rallied around me in my infant baptism, committed to raise me in a community of love and forgiveness. 
and did that and fed me through their never-ending potlucks <laughs> grandparents died when i was young grandpa at 10 i became a street kid i was out uh, breaking the law going in and out of juvenile detention facilities dropped out in the ninth grade ultimately um that landed me in you know jail and in and out <clears throat> um and in the midst of all that i met jesus and um, it changed my life. And I had a, um, a security guard in the jail who I know today was an angel who uh, placed a, a, an NIV youth edition study Bible in my chow slot um, in, in solitary confinement and uh, picked that up after debating on whether to throw it back out of the chow slot for a while, but um, it encountered the Holy Spirit that transformed my life. And so I was lucky to get out, go back to that little uh, congregation that kind of reared me. And an alcoholic pastor met me at the door. His name is Dan Jones. He said, well, Michael, I'm glad that Jesus has saved your soul. That's an exciting story. But AA will save your ass. So I need you to meet me at the noon meeting tomorrow. And uh, I'll show you how to do life sober. And that was 14 years ago. Uh, and grace filled, I think, is a is a good description for sure. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Um, yeah. And, and I so appreciate that you're transparent with that because it reminds us all, um, you know, not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And uh, because the, the hope, the hope of the kingdom and, and the gospel is what we're doing this for. Um, I know, I know we're going to get a little bit strategic on the church and the future of the church, but, uh, you know, I just thought that that'd be a great, reminder um starting off well let me let me kind of kick off our questions and i know ania and rich will jump in as well um you you titled your chapter in the book red skies uh, contextual intelligence and i know that that kind of flows out of your dissertation and some of the work uh that you've been um that you've been doing could could i get you to just start by just defining contextual intelligence like what does that mean in terms of um ecclesiology and faith yeah so to start um with scripture there's this mysterious tribe called the issacharians uh, that we learn about back in uh the in chronicles um and there's this interesting situation that's happening in first chronicles 12 where david is taking the mantle of leadership there's this transition from saul to david all the tribes are showing up and they're bringing their different resources and people power and weaponry and provisions and all those things. The Issacharians show up and it said they were the ones who could read the signs of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. So they brought a distinct kind of intelligence uh, to the community that they could read, you know, semiotics, they could see the signs of where the people of God were going and then make correct decisions about what what to do so the way that that's played out um, in the ministry of jesus is he he uses this uh, uh one of the famous you know the title to our book uh you know red sky at night sailor delight red sky in the morning sailor take morning um to say look you can read the signs of the times you can see what's happening you see a fig tree that it's about to bloom you can but you can't read the signs of the kingdom you you're not reading you know what what god's up to in this and so i see context contextual intelligence as um, a gift that god gives to the church um, to give us an awareness and an ability to kind of read where things are where they've been and kind of where they're going and last thing i'll say about it really quickly is in the business world it's fascinating um uh, uh, mayo and nahira some harvard researchers did this exhaustive study they studied what they called the uh, canon of business legends over the last century and all kind of folks in there madam cj walker and and uh, walt disney and bill gates just across history and they they observed that the the one key thing that each of those entrepreneurs leaders they had all these different gifts and abilities and and um different ways that they went about uh, leadership but the thing they held in common they called contextual intelligence which was the ability to read uh, the context. And they were turning the things that were challenges and hurdles for others into opportunities. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a intelligence that helps us 
know and see and perceive what God is up to in our in our context. And Michael, I, I would love to hear my, my favorite piece of your chapter. I'm going to read it back to you, and I'd love you to, to pull it out a little bit more. So it says, following the pattern of Acts, the edge is continually becoming the new center. Local churches are now becoming the seminary, tasked with equipping a force of contextually intelligent by and co-vocational lay ministers. This moves us beyond a priesthood into an apostolic hood of all believers, equipping every believer to be sent in mission. There is so, so much in that. I would love you just to unpack what what does it mean that the edge is continually becoming the center? Because then you talk about this is what it means to train leaders, mobilize people. But just talk to us about that that statement. Just pull that out for us a little bit more. Go deeper. Yeah, I mean, biblically speaking, we see that play out as Jesus exactly as he says it will, you know, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. And that's kind of the trajectory and the uh, for instance, in Acts 15, where there's the Jerusalem uh, Antioch kind of tension. So the Gentile, the edge uh, version of Christianity with Paul, uh, and, and they're doing some some stuff that the center considers weird, right? Uh, and a different kind of form of the faith where they're not following the 613 Levitical restrictions and whatnot. So they call together, decide, hey, we're going to empower, we're going to unleash, we're going to equip the edge. Rather than trying to dampen it or control it, we're going to work in a kind of a synergy and relationship. And I, I think if we look across the history of mission, um, and you know, Alan does this so well in the history of movements, it's always the boundary crossing edge where where we find the Holy Spirit powerfully at work, um, mo- moving ever out onto the edge of God's mission to new new groups of people, um, new ways of being church new ways that the Holy Spirit is manifesting in surprising ways uh, with people all over the place. So I think what I was trying to say there is we're, we're in one of those moments right now where uh, the church has moved to a kind of a new edge. Maybe COVID thrust us into that a little more than we were even prepared for, right? But now we're having to rethink kind of our entire ecclesiology. We have to adapt and have a missional ecclesiology that the mission of God becomes uh, the center locus of our thinking and our training and our, the way that we form church with people. I love that. Cause I feel like that, that really speaks to the, as you go of the great commission, it's not, you know, go, it's like, you're going to be going everywhere as you go, wherever it is, you go spread the gospel. And I wonder if you'd speak a little bit to how a, a blended ecology of church is so necessary for this sort of movement to the edges. Yeah, and I love that, Onia. And I think one one of the challenges with the Western church in particular has been a reading of the Great Commission that's like, um, go, take, make, build, you know, all of that, rather than this, you know, posture of vulnerability, like as you go along, as you connect with people, as you build relationships, you know, you'll be making disciples in the process of doing life together. So um, that, that very Euro-tribal reading has done some damage, I think, to the body of Christ. But um, yeah, so I serve, my wife and I, two very traditional congregations. One was planted in 1881. um, And we know that we're in a context where 60, 70, maybe 80% of the people in our context are not ever going to come to our worship service on a Sunday morning. Doesn't matter how good it is, how good the coffee is, or the worship band, or the light show. They're just not going to come. It's not even on their radar. These are the realities of uh, post-Christendom and secularization and all those things. And we see that in our community. So we started trying to explore, well, what if we go out into all the spaces where God already is as we go? Like we're not bringing Jesus with us. Jesus is already there. And we're like joining the fun that God's already up to, the kingdom mischief that God's already up to. And so that led us to start like Luke 10, the missional blueprint of Jesus, I consider. Um Find the person of peace, the person whose peace rests with you, do life with them, form relationships with them. So what that looked like for us was like a church in a tattoo parlor because we knew the owner of the shop who said, yeah, you can come worship Jesus and get tattoos here. And church in the dog park with the 80-year-old Larry who went to church his whole life, but 
never thought of himself as a church planter, but said, you know, I take my dog to the dog park on Saturdays and I hang out with a group of people. We talk about sports and politics and such. Yeah, that could become church. We'll talk, have Jesus conversations. So these little kind of like micro communities, new Christian communities, fresh expressions, whatever language you want to use. But they're just churches that are springing up in the normal spaces where people do life, spreads church out through the whole parish. Um, you know, John Wesley famously said, the world is my parish. And I think lots of Christian leaders, pastors, ministers, we make the parish our world. Um, and this is like expanding the whole ecosystem of where church can happen. And that's what the blended ecology, it's, it's not in any way dismissing that we need to have attractional and um, traditional and inherited forms of church. We're not trying to like leave the church in the rear view and say, we're not going to do that anymore because there's an attractional God, right? God, Mount Zion, Holy Hill. I'm going to draw all people to myself, God. And he's a tabernacle God wandering around in the wilderness from place to place where the, where the glory blazes, wherever God goes, kind of God. So those two things working together collectively, like what we do see in the book of Acts, center, edge, the rhythm of gathered, scattered, and living together in a kind of synergy. So what that looks like in, in any you know local context would be your stationary, more attractional forms of church doing that, but not letting that be the only way that you do church, but empowering and unleashing the whole people of God to see themselves as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers who have a ministry in their own right, you know, ordained in the waters of their baptism to cultivate new Christian communities in their, you know, normal spaces and rhythms of life. So that's the blended ecology concept. Hey, Michael, why, why do you think that um, paying attention to more kind of a more dispersed ecclesiology is important in our cultural times today? Well, I think um, throughout history, the church has always kind of taken on a little bit of the shape and the structures and the forms of, of the societal structure, structures. So, um, you know, Christendom, forms of Christianity worked. You built the building, you know, it was the state religion. There's like an expectation that people would come to church in America. You know, that was blue laws and all that stuff. So that we really adopted the um you know, industrial and very corporate uh, CEO kind of way of going about being the church um, and yeah, took on like business practices from the corporate world and such and structured our churches with committees and all those things. But that whole societal structure shifted. Um, I think Manuel Castells was the first sociologist who started to talk about the network society. So we're now in a globalized society that's, uh, you know, networked, um, connected by flows and nodes, and we're in a distributed, dispersed form of society, right? So uh, information is, is distributed and dispersed. Uh, uh, you know, this creates a, a gig economy. It creates a different way that people relate to each other and gather and connect. It creates um, maybe a, a situation where we might not know our next door neighbor, but we have a group of friendships that are based around practices. And so we'll go to a common third place and kind of participate in those practices together. So the church, uh, I'll just speak for my denomination. Uh, we still program and think and live and move and have our being in like that old institutional paradigm of church while the, the society around us, the structures have shifted and changed um, and, and we've not really been kind of on the edge of that change. So I think that's why it's important that, um, you know, we adapt to actually the way that people form relationships and connect and, and uh, the way that life is today. We have to create contextual forms of church that are meaningful, that connect with people where they are. And what, what would you say, Michael, to those everyday believers that are in context and this is kind of flicking light bulbs on it sounds like agency permission encouragement there's some a part that i get to play i don't just turn up and attend and help i actually get to live i get to breathe i get to be good news what, what would you say to to a believer who's trying to understand their context and 
understand contextualizing the gospel into their context where do they start how do they read their context what what would you recommend what would you avoid what would your word be to to somebody seeking to be good news in the context that they they work or they live yeah i think the first thing that i would say is you can do this and that the holy spirit empowers you to do this um and what I, you know, all these churches that I'm talking about in our context are all lay people, so-called uh, lay people that are cultivating these new Christian communities, planting churches. So they don't have seminary educations and they don't have like, you know, training and all of the theological, you know, all that stuff. Um, they're just everyday folks like us that are um, finding ways to connect with friends and do this. So the, the way that we try to we believe Jesus designed the church so that every follower um, can can be a person who shares their faith, grows in their faith, and cultivates new Christian communities. So I feel like what we've done kind of in the Western church is we've collapsed, compartmentalized, and, and made this the work of specialists, right? So you got your specialist evangelist, your specialist church planter, your specialist professional minister or whatever. Um, and I see that as a move of the Holy Spirit that flows through the life of every believer. Like every single one of us, we come to faith, we grow in our faith, and we share our faith, or we should at some point. So that's evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And this just makes following Jesus fun and exciting and meaningful. Because anytime I brought young people into my leadership of my inherited congregation, they're like, okay, so I'm reading liturgy on Sunday. I'm serving on the church council or SVRC or, you know, finance committee or whatever. This is the high point of my Christian life. Like, uh, I get there's got to be more, right? So, and there is more. So, what we try to teach people to do is find a friend. Like, just get together with a group of people. It's usually things you're already doing. Like, burritos and Bibles started in a Mo Southwest Grill because we like to get together eat all you can eat chips and salsa and burritos and talk about Jesus. <laughs> like that's church, right? I'm, uh, in. I'm in. You in? Everybody in for that? Um, cool. And, and, and um, we have communion in there and stuff. So it's not church light. Like we're having the sacraments, baptisms, whatever. We dump out the chips and salsa basket. We pass the collection plate, all that. But all that came from the community and time as as the spirit was leading us. It wasn't an overnight thing. But um, so, yeah, I'm, we find a friend. We find a simple way to love them. Uh, we deepen our relationships over time intentionally, conversations, um, you know, just getting to know each other, hearing each other's story, creating community. Then we share our faith in a non-sketchy way. And the way that we try to teach our folks to do that, because the again this is not people who have a seminary education leading these things so we have some framing questions that we use like um we we typically stay with jesus stories at least in the beginning for the most part because people are completely fascinated at least in my context with jesus right it's it's the church that there's like this stiff arm reaction against the church or the institutional church but jesus yeah so we'll like start that conversation I'll usually say something like, hey, can we all agree that Jesus is a great teacher? And I've never in like 13 years of doing this ever had anybody go, oh, no, Jesus is not a good teacher. It's terrible. I'll knock on wood because maybe somebody will one day. But so we start with that. Right. So here's a story that Jesus told. Now, what if this story happened today? What would it look like? And then everybody jumps into the conversation. Uh, it's not a right or wrong answer. It's not. I got to have the right theology of this situation. This is what I think it would look like. This is, you know, and then when the time's right, we may say something like, if this story's true, how would it make a difference in my life? So, so anybody can do that. Like um, one of my favorite um, uh, pioneers in our church, her name is Denise. And she was a Christian for like six months when she planted a church. So I was there when Denise prayed for the first time in her life like out in, in front of a group of people. It was a beautiful, amazing prayer. Uh, one of the best I've ever heard. Um, and now, like within six months of that, she started Church 3.1. So it's uh, she's into like running church, uh, mud runs, and they go do all these marathons and stuff. 
So she gets her friends together. She takes out her iPhone. She reads a little story from Jesus' life or a teaching or something that he said. She asks those questions. Everybody weighs in on it. They run a 5K. They come back and pray. And they go back to work, right? It's church. It's simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to happen in a, in a sanctuary or a space that the church owns. Anybody can do it. Um, and you can turn things that you already do with your friends that you love to do into forms of church. Uh, ordained in the waters of baptism, like you said. We we need to to put that in every baptism service. We need to put that on the back of every baptism shirt. It's like you're you're <laughs> baptized now. Let's get going. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, one of the things that that you said in your chapter that I, I found so fascinating was this idea that we are we steer towards this anchor of hope that God has thrown into the future. Mm. And some of the things that you name that we're going to have to deal with in order to do that are, are things like caring for the environment, um, limiting our consumption in a more biblical way, dealing with inequality. Do you find that those topics are are easier in a way to speak to in these these third spaces where you're contextual and and out in the real world with folks? Absolutely. So um, it's funny that you asked that question now, Onia, because we just uh, started our anti-racism series at our at our church, and um, uh, for the most part, don't let me be a negative Nelly about this. People responded well. Okay. It, it is a hard thing, particularly for uh, uh, white folks who have been sheltered and not have to, you know, deal with our, our racism that we harbor. So, but there was definitely some some folks that are not happy. Okay, um, now they're the minority, but they're you know, and I'm sure that they'll find a church that they'll they'll appreciate better. But so you know, that's a challenge because there there's people that are set in this like. You know, there. Let's just be honest. There's some super racist uh, theology that's that's built in to our ecclesiology, right? Uh, it's just there. So, yep. but to have that same conversation in the tattoo parlor or at the MLK, where one of our fresh expressions has called Connect, we have breakfast church there. Um, it's a whole different conversation. It's like not even controversial that we need to talk about this. So, there there is um, a little bit more freedom, and it's more conversational and it's it's more about facilitating kind of people bringing bringing their self to the table rather than the professional you know monologue kind of thing that happens in most churches so yeah and i mean these things actually can be focused on that kind of stuff right so we have creation care groups like that's their focus of their fresh expression they they get together and take in nature and do pictures with hashtags and stuff there's groups around anti-racism like our our some of our stuff would connect with so to try to break down the racism in our very segregated community so these are forms of church and i think that's where the disconnect can be it's like i'm all about social justice and i'm you know i'm participating in that um and i'm all about cultivating new christian communities but some people like separate those things where they have to be separate and I see when the real kingdom magic happens is when we see those things as an integrated thing, that social justice and um, um, ministries that are aimed at, at challenging the systemic problems in our, in our society, in our world, can actually also be a way to create Christian communities around issues that we're passionate about. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to like break down that wall and say, this is all really kind of the same thing. Forming Christian community and being anti-racist is like the same, you know, it's part of our discipleship, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or it should be. So, yeah. Yeah. Michael, how many of, so are all of these third place um, churches connected to the primary church or are they, is it kind of a mix? Like, are you launching Fresh expressions kind of out of the main building, and but then there are also some that feel totally disconnected from that as a movement. They they really are all connected. <clears throat> um, I think some of them like start with the Christian sitting in the pew, Larry, who starts Pause of Praise Dog Park Church. 
some of them are more like we're connecting with the edge persons a piece that are in our community already doing awesome stuff like um pastor eric who we connected with to have you know um uh racial reconciliation marches and stuff together and then that grew into like a gathering that we had um, and we're just trying to like be alongside and support and form relationship with people that are already doing awesome stuff but it all exists kind of in a connect a connection and a network and one of the things we try to emphasize is um that we we maintain that connection with the inherited church because where i've seen things go kind of off a little bit and and get a little crazy is when they become like these little um island things that aren't connected to the larger church so that can go bad really fast like cultish kind of stuff can happen mm -hmm. so we're really trying to sustain that relationship um like i have people at my inherited church who still to this day go why are we doing church in a tattoo parlor when are those people going to come to church you know like real church and i'm like well we're worshiping jesus we're having baptisms and taking the lord's supper and yeah. so i i rather than trying to like fight that battle and climb that hill the way we the way we frame it is look your prayers presence gifts service witness your faithfulness being a part of this worshiping community enabled seven people to get baptized in the tattoo parlor last week thank you for your faithfulness and this is this congregation is not just what's happening here in this building this morning it's this whole connection of things that are happening all over the community mm -hmm. and then when we're with people in the community where we're lifting up we try not to let those things turn into like a inherited church bash, bashing session so when people express harm that it has happened you know bad christians happen to good people right there's a whole category of people out there duns who are like i won't ever go to church i'll come to tattoo party church and burritos and bibles but so we try to like not let that turn into oh you know because I mean, the institutional church it's got a lot of things wrong over the last two thousand years for sure absolutely but it's also created more beauty and goodness and truth and healing in the world than any other body in history right the church of jesus christ has done that too so we're trying to encourage them like you're you know we're the wild ones you're part of that this there's this other congregation if you ever want to check it out on a sunday morning you know no no uh no pressure but and some do like they they kind of participate in all of it so it's it's not like a um an institutional like you belong and you have to sign a thing or whatever it's just more of a relational uh connectivity that we have yeah i think we found the sponsor for our podcast show up with your bible at mo's on monday there you go yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mo's southwest grill yeah that's great <laughs> well hey michael one uh one question as we're kind of wrapping up here, um, there are pastors that are probably listening to this that know that they need to pivot into something. Um, I mean, pastors all around the country are kind of feeling that liminal tension that COVID probably escalated and, you know, people aren't coming back to church, whatever it is. Um, and micro this idea of micro church is becoming a conversation everywhere um so what would you say i mean i know you have a role with fresh expressions as the director of remissioning which means churches that feel like they need to shift or pivot or remission um they could find some help from from the areas that you oversee. So what what would you say are good beginning steps and helps for pastors in thinking about, you know, dispersing their congregation into fresh expressions and other forms of church? Yeah, I think I would say, um, dream big and start small and you don't have to get the whole congregation on board with this. Um, I think that's where a lot of people just get stuck. Uh, I know it's been a constant challenge in my own ministry. Not everybody's going to be thrilled and excited about this, but start with a small team of people who have shining eyes and have a passion for people outside the church. Get those people in a room, pray together, people map your community, ask, you know, where are the broken spaces in the community that God's calling us to join into God's work? Um, do we have a person at peace in some place that owns a 
Tex-Mex place or tattoo parlor or the, the yoga instructor at the YMCA or all of these connections that we have just usually um, in, in the community. And just experiment and don't be afraid, afraid to fail because you will, like you're going to fail. Like It's easy to talk about all this stuff that we have going now, but there's like, that's built on a mountain of failure, like dozens of these things that didn't work or we tried something and maybe it really, you know, people came to know Jesus and it was great for a time, but then it didn't work out or whatever. So, but um, it's experimentation, it's iteration. It doesn't cost anything. Um, so like none of our fresh expressions cost anything. Our dinner church has a little bit of a cost. We work it out to where we're able to get food and such, where uh, it actually doesn't cost the main church anything. But um, so it's 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 low risk. You know, you can do this. Just get a little team, innovate together. Now, the cool thing, and uh, just because you mentioned remissioning, and this was not like my intention from the beginning. I was just passionate about let's go out and try to connect people that don't know Jesus because my own life has formed me for that, right? To, mm-hmm. to notice and to know there's people way outside the reach of the church mm-hmm. and they're never going to come here. So we got to go and find ways to be church with them. But remissioning is a concept that as we do that, the really cool unanticipated um, reaction, I wouldn't say this is the renovation of the church to even do this, honestly. But we saw as we made those connections and we're growing with people and they get over the stereotypes about Christians, our inherited congregations have exploded with growth uh, with people who like connected with us in burritos and Bibles or met us for the first time in the tattoo parlor. And now they're like a member of Wildwood United Methodist Church. So the whole revitalization congregation is like, you know, we'll tweak things. We'll make it better. We'll do something different in worship. Remissioning is about we're going to join what God's doing in the community. We're going to try to find feedback loops kind of, or, um, just ways to like channel that back into the congregation and make them feel a part of it. Um, and then what happens is the the congregation awakens to God's mission. And sometimes where we become like a gated community for so long, now it's like, oh, actually we exist not just to, to take care of each other, but to go out. And so it just changes the whole kind of culture of a congregation, really. And we call that remissioning. So it's like revitalization, if you have to use that word, but from the outside in. It's like localizing the great commandment in our neighborhood and our context. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, hey, um, how can people keep up with what you're doing? I know you're you're doing. It seems like you're doing a hundred things a week. I try to keep up with you on social media, and you're running too fast for me. Um, but I know you write like two or three books a year. And you're speaking places, and you're you started a metaverse VR church, I think. And it's, you know, so where do people keep up with what you're doing and get in contact with you? Yeah, and it looks like I'm doing a lot, but it really is my teams, yeah. and I just get to be their cheerleader and encourager, That's and cool. and walk alongside or so. Um, I have just great teams of people doing all this cool stuff. But MichaelAdamBeck.com is my main space where I just kind of keep everything localized. Um, so you can reach me there. Okay. Well, good deal. And you're, and you are on social. So if they want to, if they want to follow what you're doing and what's the name of the VR church that you're doing right now, cause that's way out yeah. on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Living room church. And since you mentioned it, I just got to say, it's one of the most multicultural, beautiful global things we've ever started accidentally as these things usually go but pop on your vr headset and join us monday nights at eight o'clock it's called living room church vr people from all over the world gather and um, we have a a new christian community right there in the vr space it's fantastic well hey ania thanks for thanks for joining the conversation with us it's great to see you Thank you. And thank you, Michael. That was, this has been fascinating and I will be checking out that VR church. I've got my headset ready to go. Nice. Do you, do you own a yeah. headset, Ania? I do. Yeah. Do you, see, I don't have, I need to go get one now and I guess it could be a church budget expense, right? A VR headset. Of course. Of yeah, course. It's, it's, it's on the record now. So it's on the record. Yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, thank you both for joining us, Michael. Appreciate all that you're doing for the kingdom and uh, for the church. And thanks for being a contributor in Red Skies. It's a fantastic chapter. Thank you.
Uh, I am so honored to be a part of it. Thank you for including me. I, okay. I just feel like such a blessing to be with so many uh, giants of the faith that I look up to. Yeah, well, good deal. We'll talk to you both soon, okay? Awesome. Bye. Thank you for joining this episode of Red Skies, the podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective and 100 Movements Publishing in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance. You can join the conversation at movementleaderscollective.com and connect with us at Red Skies at redskiesfuture.com. And as well, pick up your copy of Red Skies 10 Essential Conversations for Our Future as the Church on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other places that fine books are sold. Be sure to like this podcast and share it with others, and we look forward to continued conversations on our future as the church.